Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Well, it's good to be here with you all. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm excited to be here because I've grown up with so many of you, and some of you are literally my biological brothers and sisters. Some of you are like brothers and sisters to me in Christ, or you are all, if you believe in Christ, brothers and sisters to me in Christ, and some of you are like brothers and sisters to me relationally. And so it's a privilege to be here, but it's also weighty because I'm dealing with the Word of God. And as we'll see in the text, the Word of God is powerful, not a thing to be messed with. So I want you to turn to Acts 17, if you would. And as we're studying through the book of Acts this summer, we've been looking at how is God building His church. In what ways is God building His church in the book of Acts? And it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but we might call it the Acts of God, as He's establishing His church on the gospel of His Son. And so... In the text in Acts 17, spoiler alert, the main thrust is we will see God building His church through the working of His Word. And that the Word of God, and I quote the text in this, it turns the world upside down. It flips it on its head. And we'll see in the text today, if you're taking notes, these are the things we'll see. We'll see a method, and we'll see a message. We'll see a method which Paul shares the gospel in. We'll see how he shares the gospel to non-believers and believers alike. And we'll see how we might preach the gospel to ourselves, how we might preach the gospel to non-believers, the proper method to do that by. And then we'll see also a message. What is Paul's message that he proclaims to the Thessalonians and to the Bereans? What's the message I proclaim to you today? And what is the message which your hope and your faith is grounded on if you're in Christ? And if you're not in Christ, then what is the message that you desperately need to know? And then from that, we see the results or the responses to the word also in the text. And so as a bit of context, um, we've just come out of Philippi, the church of Philippi, which Alex preached to us on almost three to four weeks ago now. There was a church in Philippi which God was establishing, establishing through Paul and Silas. And then they come out of Philippi, and there's this road called the Nation Way that they would have taken through the towns called Amphipolis and Apollonia, which we'll see in our text. Funny names. And then they come to Thessalonica, and then Paul's plan, according to what he writes in Romans, that he desperately wanted to be with the Romans. So he writes in the Epistle of Romans, is that he would have wanted to go to Rome. And so he would have taken the nation away to Rome, because that's where it led. But God's plan was different, and he used persecution to take Paul out of Thessalonica into Berea, southward, and then further into Athens, where we see more people are saved by the word of God, just in the second half of this same chapter. And so we're in Acts 17, and I also, I want to do a different exercise today. We don't usually do this at Redeemer Students. But I want you to stand with me for the reading of the Word, and before you do, you're in Acts 17, and we're doing this not out of some sort of legal thing, like, like we've got to stand, we've got to, we got to get up for the reading of the Word, but it's out of a sign of respect and reverence for the Word. Because in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, God takes his people out of the Babylonian captivity, and he brings them back into the promised land. Just as he's done for many of you, taking you out of your sin and brought you into the blend of his promise. And what happens in Ezra and in Nehemiah is that Ezra the priest reads the words to the people. He reads the law of God to the people. And the law of God condemns them and they're confessing their sins and they're crying. And he says, take heart and be cheered. And so we stand for the, the law 
as it's presented in Ezra, and how much more than we stand for the gospel as it's presented in Acts and in all the rest of Scripture. And that's my reason for having you stand. So please stand now. Don't be thinking about how your feet hurt. Don't think about the weight and the gravity that is in the Word of God. We're going to read 1 through 15, and then we'll break it down and we'll look at what's in it. Acts 17, 1. Now when they, Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and his buddies, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they come to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was like a... a Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia were like suburbs of Thessalonica. Thessalonica had a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, these guys are sluggards and deadbeats, they had nothing better to do than to cause commotion, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, who was a new believer, seeking to bring them, Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers instead before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, namely Jesus. And the people and all the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And we cut the scene in Thessalonica, and we come to Berea in verse 10, where he says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews in Berea were more noble, or the Greek translation renders it fair-minded or open-minded to the scriptures than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things that Paul spoke of were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we'll jump, we'll jump right into the text. Acts 17. What is Paul's method? As we're seeing God building his church through the working of, the, of his word, which is powerful, what is Paul's method of sharing the word, sharing the gospel? Well, firstly, he presents it with reason. Look at verse 2. It says, Then Paul went in, into the synagogue, as was his custom. It really is the classic Paul move to go into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul does not come to them with man-made reasoning, with philosophies and wisdoms and religions and theologies that are made of man, made by man, and presented by man. But he comes to them with the word of God. And he presents the scriptures to them. They're not the words of men. They're the word of God. And they're powerful because they're the word of God. And secondly, he doesn't come to them with this spiritual sappiness. He doesn't come to them with weird emotional spirituality. He comes to them with the word of God reasonably. It says that he reasons from the scriptures. And so he presents the word 
and he presents the word with reason. But it's not just every now and then that he does this. It says in the beginning of the verse, and Paul went in as was his custom. Paul's used to this. This guy is consumed with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's consumed with presenting the word of God, the scriptures, the gospel, this message that we're going to look at with reasonableness. And so as you evangelize to your own hearts, as you preach to your own hearts, as you evangelize to others that, that don't know Christ, we present the word with reasonableness. And we do it constantly. We should be consumed with it as always. Secondly, in his method, Paul reasons, and he reasons from the scriptures, but primarily, he's watching the word doing the work. It's the word doing the work and not Paul. And you don't have to turn there, but in the epistle to the Thessalonians, he writes a letter to the Thessalonians later, which is the same church that he's establishing now. And so we have sort of this parallel uh, conversion story that Paul writes later on that helps us interpret and understand Acts better. And so he says in this, and look at the power of the word in this. Watch, watch how God is using his word and not the words of men. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, for it is not, but as what it really is, that is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so we see, with Paul, he's watching the word work. He presents the word. He does his duty. He's a, he's a human agent who presents the word. But he's watching the word work, and he's watching the word do work in the believer's hearts. And to those who don't know Christ, it is justifying. The word is working in them to justify. It condemns them in their sin, and it teaches them how to know Christ. And so the word, you're saved not by the word, but by the gospel that is in the word. By knowing the scriptures and seeing the scriptures. Even in the Old Testament, we'll see that Paul reasoned the gospel, the promised Messiah, the perfect sacrifice out of the Old Testament. And so the word firstly has the power to justify. But that's not it. And praise be to God, because it also sanctifies us. To sanctify us, to make more like Christ. Go read Romans 8. It is to make us from one degree of glory into another. So to all those who are saved, it says this is how you're to live now. This is how you're to live. This is how your life is to be a living sacrifice and how you're to live a life pleasing to God. And Paul uses it in that way as well because he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says that this word, which you did not receive from men, but you received from God, this word which is at work in you believers currently, to take you back to grammar class, is is a, is a present tense verb. And so he, it is working in the believers. These people have been saved. They are believers. They've been made right before Christ, before God. But it is working in them now to make them more holy. It shows us our sin. And if you know Christ, you will hate your sin and you will, flush, you will want to flush it out by the Spirit working in you. And so the Word both justifies and sanctifies as it works in us. But... Imagine reading uh, John 3.16 or Romans 8.1. There's therefore not enough condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to a non-believer. Without the Spirit of God working in them, nothing is going to happen. And so we've seen, we've seen Paul, his method is to present the Word with reasonableness, to present the Scriptures with reasonableness, to watch the Word do its work. But the Word of God will just bounce off cold hearts, bounce off stony hearts all day long. And so... 
what Paul does is he looks to the Spirit of God to work in him. It is not the words of men alone, it is the Word of God that is applied by the Spirit that gives so much power to the Word. So we simply watch the Spirit apply the Word. Alongside Paul preaching the Word and counting on its work, he counts on the Spirit. I can't say that enough because nothing will happen apart from the Spirit of God working. And again, we go to 1 Thessalonians to see the conversion story. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, Paul says, For we know, brothers, who are loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do we know that He's chosen you? What are the marks of those who are saved? Because our gospel, the word, came to you not only in word, not only in arguments and reasoning, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's like, look, you've been saved, and that is not because of what I've told you. It's not because of my reasoning. It's not because of the words of men, because the words of men are empty, but the word of God is full. And it justifies and it sanctifies when the Spirit applies it. And so Paul says, the Spirit has applied the gospel to your hearts. And we know that you're chosen of God. And we know that you're beloved by God. And we know that you'll be kept by God because we see that the Spirit has applied the word to your heart. And so, with Paul's method, we want to get to the message because it is the focal point. Nothing else matters if we don't have the message. But Paul's method is that he presents the word with reasonableness, as we see in verse 2 in Acts 17. And then, as we see in 1 Thessalonians, he looks to the word of God to work. And he looks to the spirit of God to work. That is a huge weight off of Paul's shoulders when he says, I'm merely presenting the word of God and I count on it to work in you. And so we move on to Paul's message. And I'm camping out in the beginning of this chapter because chapter 2 is Paul's method and chapter 3 alone, that's all we're going off of right now, is Paul's message. And before we get to the two responses that the, that the Jews in Thessalonica and the Jews in Berea have, we have to understand the message. And before, before we respond, we have to understand and know the message. And so Luke... The writer of Acts tells us that Paul explained, this is verse 3, he explained and proved that it was necessary, one, for the Christ to suffer, and two, to rise from the dead. It is necessary for the Christ to suffer, and it was necessary for the Christ to rise from the dead. And thirdly, Paul was saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, this Jesus I'm telling you about, he is the Christ. He is the anointed one whom God had promised in the Old Testament. Paul doesn't have the New Testament at this point. He's reasoning from the Old Testament. And so we have A, it's necessary for the Christ to suffer. B, it's necessary for the Christ to rise from the dead or to be exalted. And C, this Jesus that Paul proclaims, he is the Christ. So, students of Redeemer Church, that's how Paul starts his uh, discourses. He says, men of Athens or men of Israel, students of Redeemer Church, God has been very kind to you in many ways, and he's a holy, and he's a good God. But you, student, either were or you are dead in your sin, and I must tell you that God requires a sacrifice. This is what Paul's saying to them. And this is what I say to you. God requires a sacrifice because you're not right before him, and he's holy, and you're not. And so we're like, all right, we're fumbling for sacrifices. What, what kind of sacrifices can we have? Well, in ancient Israel, the Israelites would have the altar, and they would slaughter an animal, somebody called uh, pet protection services, and they sprinkle the blood on the altar, and then they would, they would roast the meat, and the pleasing aroma would rise to the Lord. 
But God says he doesn't want those. In Psalm 51, 16, he says, I don't want your offerings. I don't want your sacrifices. And so then we in the present age, outside of sacrificing animals, which I hope none of you do, we'll try to do good works. We try to do our best to get right before God. Or God has granted you a certain good thing, certain gifts. You're athletic, or you're pretty, or you're smart. God has given you all those things, and none of them are good enough to make you right before Him. And so God, God said, I'm a holy God, you are a sinner, you must give a sacrifice in order to be right for me. And we're like, what's our sacrifice? We know bulls and rams don't work. We know that good works don't work. And we know that nothing that God has given us works, and He's given us all things, so we're left at loss. He's given us one thing that works. And this is why the Christ must suffer. This is why he must die. Because God demands a perfect sacrifice. Exodus 25 says, I demand a sacrifice without blemish, God says. It must be perfect. Absolutely perfect. And so this is the dilemma that the Israelites find themselves in because they had nothing to offer to God which is perfect. The rams and bulls which they offered are not perfect. And this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in now. Nothing that you can offer to God is perfect. And in Paul's message to them and in my message to you, this is why the Christ must suffer. Psalm 46-8 says, In sacrifice and offering you, Lord, have not delighted, but a body you have prepared for me. And in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, and this is the Christ speaking. This is how Paul would have spoken out of the Old Testament. This is the Christ speaking in his psalm. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. The Christ came to do the will of the Lord, as it is written in the scroll of the book, to fulfill the prophecies. So do you see why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer? God doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want anything you can give him. He wants only what he has given to you. And so the second thing Paul tells us, first the Christ must suffer, and secondly, he must rise from the dead. Why must the Christ rise from the dead? Well, a king is not much of a king if he's dead. The world sees the powerful and the mighty, and this is why the gospel turns the world on its head, because the world sees the powerful and the mighty as those things that we must run towards. But we see in Christ's suffering, in our own king's suffering, what saves us is suffering. The death of Christ and his crucifixion. And so it was not only necessary for him to suffer, though, but it was also necessary for him to rise from the dead. Because he, in his rising from the dead, in his rising from the grave, he is proclaimed as the king of kings. And he's, he's almost coronated, in a sense. He's proclaiming the victor over sin and death as he puts death in the grave. And, and again, to reason from the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom. Again, speaking of the Christ, is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness, and you have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, or chosen you, or sent you. He's the perfect sacrifice with the oil of gladness behind your companions. Not only was he the right sacrifice, but he was anointed with the oil of gladness, and he was raised from the dead, and he was exalted. 
And Hebrews says, long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, through whom he also created everything. He made the heir of all things. And then skip a little bit. And it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is the exaltation of Christ. Then he rose from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven. And now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which is a place of honor that is above every other name in the universe. And so the Christ must suffer, the Christ must rise from the dead or be exalted. And finally Paul says, this Jesus, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. Jesus, the historical figure, the one we read of in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's the one who was spoken of in the Old Testament, who would come to be the sacrifice and who would come to be exalted. Jesus Christ was born a baby, descended from heaven, condescended from heaven, born a baby, born into this world, suffered through life, was tempted as we are in every way, was beaten, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was crucified as the climax of his suffering, he was put in the tomb, and then he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. I just told you those things about the Christ, and I tell you the same things about Jesus, who lived on this earth, who was a God, who was God and man, truly. And so this Jesus, who I tell you of today, and this Jesus who Paul spoke of, he is the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.4 says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, just as Paul is speaking of, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's fulfilling all these prophecies. This Jesus who came is fulfilling the prophecies and this Jesus is the Christ. It is by faith and it is by repentance that you come to know him and that you cling to Christ. It is by nothing that you've done. You can't offer the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that God has provided that you must cling to in order to be made right before him. And so Paul offers to the Thessalonians and he offers to the Bereans this Jesus who suffered, who was exalted, and he is Jesus Christ. And I offer you the same tonight. The word of God offers you the same tonight as Paul speaks in verse 3. Christ is free. It is by no means of anything that you've done that you receive him. But he's free to you because God has given him as a gift to you. And then, through the hearing of the word and the gift of God, the gift of faith, he applies the word to your heart. And so, in Acts 17, then, we see two responses. And you have the same two responses can be made tonight. Paul comes, he offers the gospel to them by his method, and we know his message. So what are the results, or what are the responses to the word? There are only two possible responses to the word. And the first is of the Jews. We see in verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. The Jews are jealous, because as the gospel is being proclaimed as Jesus Christ and his freeness is being proclaimed. The Jews are losing people and they're running to Christ. 
as people move out of the demonic religion that the Jews had and professed. And they're being set free into the glorious freedom of the children of God, as Paul says. They're losing people and they're becoming jealous as their numbers dwindle and the numbers of the kingdom of God are rising. And we praise God for that. Secondly, they cause more evil. In their jealous rage, they go out and they look for these guys. And these guys would have been, these guys would have been, seriously, like I said, they would have been the deadbeats. Because the guys didn't have jobs and they had nothing better to do than persecute Christians. And so they go out and they find the wickedest of men, the scum of the earth, the low, the low life. The gospel can save them too, by the way, but it doesn't in this passage. The Jews collect them together and they set them at the city. They form a mob. They set the city in an uproar and they attack the believers. And so they're causing more evil. They're adding sin onto sin and evil onto evil. In Romans 1, it says that when our hearts are hardened to God and to the gospel, as the gospel calls us to repentance and to belief, and if we harden our hearts to that, then God gives us over to our sins and our passions and our lusts. And he did here for the Jews. They're adding sin on sin on sin. They rejected God and God gave them over to their sin. And then they also promote so much confusion. It's what evil does. It promotes confusion. It does not have a good result. And in their hardest part, they're becoming a part of this and promoting confusion. As an illustration, you guys remember the race riots last summer? Things smashing, burning, beating people up. People died. Or you remember when the White House was stormed, or the Capitol was stormed. Woe to me if I take the political side in the pulpit. But as an illustration, you see what mobs do. It's chaos. This is what it would have looked like in Thessalonica when the Jews promoted this. They sent the men out and they're just ripping stuff up. The Jews are condemned. If you hear the word of the Lord today, I have given you the word of the Lord. That the Christ must suffer, that he must rise from the dead, and that Jesus is the Christ. If you hear the word of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as the Jews did. The wrath of God remained on their heads. They're condemned forever. By their hardness of heart, they were damning themselves. But on the other hand, and by the good grace of God, we have the Berean response. In verse 10, we switch from Thessalonica to Berea, and it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Again, there goes Paul, preaching the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now these Jews, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness and examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The Bereans' response. We always look at the Bereans and we hear study the word more. Yes, study the word more, but the Bereans, specifically it says that they received the word. Paul preaches the gospel to them and they receive the word. They receive the word of God because it is the word of God and not the word of men. And so the first thing to be done when the gospel is preached is to receive it. We hear the gospel. We take note of it. And it says they do it with all eagerness. 
They're like jumping at the text. They want to study it and they want to know it. Secondly, they believe the gospel. They not only receive the word with all eagerness and let it stop there, but they also believe the gospel, which is free to them. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so they heard the truth of the gospel and they called on the name of the Lord and they were saved, as Paul says. Remember that Paul explains how the Spirit applies the word to us with power and full conviction. And this is how that verse plays into our text. Paul says in Romans that preaching or speaking the gospel or reading the word will lead to hearing, obviously. And hearing leads to believing. And believing leads to saving. Believing in the gospel results in being justified, made right before God. It it results in saving faith. And even as I speak to you now, even as Paul spoke to them, God wants you if you do not know him. And he speaks to you in his word. He desires for you to hear his word, to believe his word. And then thirdly, he desires the believers to propagate the truth, to continue sharing the word of God. We see this in verse 14 and 15 in Acts 17. If you go there, it says, then the brothers, after they're persecuted by the Jews who come from Thessalonica, it's like this isn't even in your, of your business anymore. And they just come from Thessalonica down to Berea. And they're agitating and stirring up the crowds, doing the same thing. It's the same tactics they use in Thessalonica. It's their evil and hard-heartedness. But God, God uses the brothers who have, recent, who have recently been saved, the new converts, to continue the message of the gospel. In Acts 14 and 15, it says, Then the brothers immediately set Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. The brothers are assisting Paul in his ministry. And verse 15, those who conducted Paul, they brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. These men are new converts, and they leave their families and their jobs and their schedules in Berea in order to assist Paul in the ministry because it's become the new greatest thing in their life and it will remain the greatest thing in their life. And so, as believers hear the gospel, as those who don't know the gospel hear the gospel, they receive the gospel, they must believe the gospel in order to be saved, and then those who believe the gospel will propagate the truth. They share the gospel. They continue on the ministry. By the same good news that has been given to them, they then give that good news to others. And as the Spirit of God goes to work, others will be saved. And I've I sort of, as I was thinking about titles, I sort of wanted to title this a couple different things, but I love the verses that say that that the world is being flipped upside down. By what? The gospel, the message. And so, we've seen Paul's method. He preaches the word with all reasonableness. He counts on the word to work. He counts on the spirit of God to work. And in his message, the Christ must suffer. In order for you to be saved, the Christ must suffer. The Christ must be raised from the dead. He must be exalted. And this Jesus, who Paul proclaims, and who I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And then we saw the two responses. The hard-heartedness of the Jews, which condemns them, and the fair-mindedness of the Bereans, by which 
the word of God is able to work in them and they're saved. The gospel takes root in them. And so in application, I just want to look at these accusations. I want to look at the accusations that the men of Thessalonica were shouting at the believers. So they dragged Jason and his friends from his home. They found them, they dragged them from their homes, and they brought them before the city authorities, shouting, and pick up with me here in verse 6. These men, here are our accusations. These men who have turned the world upside down, they have come here also. And Jason, he has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Two accusations. Jesus is the king, not Caesar. And the other accusation, these men are turning the world upside down. They have one absolutely and beautifully perfect. And they're sharing the truth just as much as Paul is. Jesus is the king. But he was the king who came in a humble form. He was the Messiah and the king who suffered. And then was proved the king by his rising from the dead, as we saw in Paul's message. But their second point, these men, they turned the world upside down, and they come here also. Well, they have a half-truth there. These men have not turned the world upside down, but it is God working through his word, through Paul and Silas and Timothy, which turns the world upside down. It's no longer the glorious things that we see that can make us right before God. It's not the strong, it's not the mighty, but Jesus, go read the Beatitudes. Blesses the meek and the humble and the gentle. Why? Because they have understood the kingdom of God. Because Jesus came as the physician to heal those who needed him. Not those who had absolutely no need of him. Those who had no need of him can try to get to heaven on their own. And I promise you they will fail. And I promise you you will fail. But those who recognize the need of him and who humble themselves under God and accept Christ it is he who came to save and to build them up. Because the law, every time that we read the law, not just Genesis through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, numbers, will convict you. But the whole word of God convicts you because it says God is a holy God and he is a good God and he is a righteous God. And then when you search your own heart, it condemns you as a sinner. And you know that apart from God and the love of God, you're just like the Jews. You are in a jealous rage. You're adding sin onto sin. And you are living in confusion. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give the weak and the brokenhearted. And so when you believe in Jesus, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it is nothing that you do. It is everything that Christ has done. He says he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so take his yoke because it's life. He bears our sins while we receive his righteousness. And we are made right before God by that. The gospel, the word of God, scripture, this word which we have, and you have seven of them on your bookshelf, we hold it in so little regard. In derision and contempt, really. 
It's the very word of God. A holy and righteous God has spoken to us in these pages and in these words. And we hold it with so little value. If you would, turn to Hebrews 4.12 as I continue to speak. Now, land our plane with this. We have seen that God is building up his church through the working of his word. We have seen Paul's method. We have seen that he presents the word with reasonableness. That he counts on the word of God to work. That he counts on the spirit of God to work. And then, most importantly, and most beautifully, and most wonderfully, we've seen a message, which is that the Christ must suffer on your account, on my account. That he must rise from the dead and be exalted and proclaimed king, and that Jesus is the Christ. And so Romans 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and it is active. The word of God, which God is using to build his church in Acts, and even now, is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I, I pray that if the word of God has not done that to you yet, I pray that it would pierce you like a sword. And if you're outside of Christ, it convicts. If you're in Christ, it also convicts. And it shows you his holiness and it makes you desire to be more like him, but you know that you can be like him because... He has died for you. Continuing on, and this is, this is scary. 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So as we close, just think about that. Your exposure before God. His word pierces the heart. And I, I, I want to leave this note with those who have not been saved by Christ, who have not believed Paul's message to Thessalonica and to Berea and God's message to you. You are a sinful creature, naked and exposed before the eyes of a holy God. Repent and believe. But to the believer, I must, I must tell you where you come from. It says no creature is hidden from his sight. None of us were ever hidden from the sight of God. We were all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We were all once under judgment. But the beautiful and the wonderful thing that Christ does for us when we are saved, he takes his robes and he covers our filthy nakedness and exposure. He covers us with his robes, which is his righteousness. And so when we stand before God, a holy judge, it's no longer that we are naked and exposed before him in our sins, and he looks on us and sees us as a sinner, but he looks on us and he sees his son's robe on us. How good is that? What, a, what God would do that, but a loving God and a gracious God and a merciful God, and if the robes of Christ have been put on you, they will never come off, because it's not your righteousness that you're living by, but it's the righteousness of God of Christ. And so, those who do not believe, I pray that you're terrified and that you look to Christ because he's your only comfort. For those who do believe, 
simply take comfort and be thankful to the God who has given you all things that are needful for life and godliness. Hold the word of God highly because he's given it to you as a word from him. And he builds his church through it. And he builds up our hearts through it. And he builds up believers through it. And he sanctifies us through it. And beloved, brother and sister, you're loved by God if you're in Christ, because you're in Christ, and because you wear his robes and not your own. The gospel turns the world upside down.